Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. This is the most critical thing today and what we need to look at over the next two, three, four years is a whole process of truth-telling that the whole country is educated on what happened in this country from 1788 onwards. And if the country is ever to heal where we can join hands together and walk on to a shared future, we have to go through this process. You can't continue to sweep the history under the carpet as if it never happened. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Providing an Indigenous perspective of our history has proved increasingly important in contemporary Australia. For much of his life, Warramai man John Maynard has aimed to ensure Indigenous stories are told through his work as both an historian and academic. As he prepares to step down from his role as Chair of Indigenous History at the University of Newcastle, it's a fitting time to look back at his life and career. The grandson of Aboriginal rights activist Fred Maynard, his work has focused heavily on the intersection of Aboriginal political and social history. He has held positions within several major organisations, including the Australian Historical Association, New South Wales History Council and the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, or AATSIS. He's also the author of a number of critically acclaimed books, Living with the Locals, Fight for Liberty and Freedom and The Aboriginal Soccer Tribe. Emeritus Professor John Maynard, welcome back to Speaking Out. Pleasure, Larissa, as always. Now, just because we're doing quite an in-depth look at your life and career, let's have a look at where it all began and just wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about what it was like for you growing up and in particular, what really shaped your worldview, what experiences kind of made you the person that you are? Oh, for sure. I think it was uh, undoubtedly my family life. My parents and family um, certainly had the biggest impact on me. I was always classified as a free spirit and I was given room to run, so to speak. And um, with my father, a jockey, uh, we travelled a lot. When I was 12 months old, my mother always recounts that um, by the time I was 12 months old, I'd been in every town in New South Wales or at least those with the racetrack. So, and there's not many that haven't got a racetrack. So, and then by the age of four, we were living in New Zealand. Uh, my father was riding there. And when I was eight, we were living in Singapore and Malaysia. My father was riding over there. So there was a lot of movement and um, I've been moving ever since. There was no readers in the family. I mean, our, our place was the only reading material was uh, Best Bets and The Sportsman. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, was, I was a bit of a standout. From a very early age, I read an awful lot. I mean, I just consumed um, books and, and just loved reading. And um, that was probably the thing that stood me in the greatest stead because I didn't click at school from the day I got there, you know, I switched off and um, well, with me, the school system of the 50s and 60s, and there was nothing in the school curriculum about us, you know, either culturally or historically. I mean, for us to be mentioned, it was to be classified as a stone age people or a dying race. So 
these were the impacts on to me from an early age. And um, and as I said, my family and my mother and my father, and I've mentioned that many times, my father was a, a, an honourable man, a very proud man, and um, he was a, a great influence on my life. And speaking of proud and honourable men in your family, of course, your grandfather, Fred Maynard, was a trailblazer for Aboriginal rights, a story that you've been instrumental in bringing back into our collective memory. Just on a personal level, though, how influential is his story to your life? Absolutely a a major driving force for me. And, you know, it was an enriching personal journey for me. I mean, I was 39 years of age. I mean, I'd never set foot in a university. And my father, it was, it said to me, he wanted me to put, um, as he said, the old man story together for us as a family. I mean, it was a undertaking a family history project. And he wanted the story told of, you know, my grandfather's fight for Aboriginal rights. And it was no bigger project than doing that for the family and doing it up in a nice exercise book and putting in some of the photographs that the family retained and some letters and some newspaper cuttings and then for me to write it up and present it to the family. But of course, I also ventured amongst the libraries and archives that I was going to and little historical societies, I ventured to the University of Newcastle, to Wallatooka, the Aboriginal Education Centre, to ask for advice on other areas that I might explore, you know, that they might advise me to go and look at. But um, I was kidnapped into doing a diploma course and then a <laughs> BA <laughs> and then a PhD and finished up a professor. But it was all about my grandfather's story and that never altered, you know, from the time undertaking my father's wish to to put the family history together and, and realising, you know, what an incredible history this was. And as I said, coming through a school system and looking at Australian history where we were absent, we were missing from the page. And yet how could this story of the 1920s where an all-Aboriginal political organisation gained such incredible media coverage and made such an impact were overlooked quickly forgotten and, you know, erased from not just uh, the historical page, but memory, even for us. And that was a process of, of erasing Aboriginal Aboriginal memory and certainly inspiration. And I mean, I think uh, that was a process that was underway. So my grandfather's story for me, he's, he's a guiding light for me of what he stood for, what he said. And it's so relevant even today, the whole issue of a national land rights agenda self-determination, protecting the Aboriginal family, that Aboriginal people should be in charge of Aboriginal affairs, all of these things which are today still on our... And that just shows how little progress we've made, you know, in the nearly 95 years since the establishment of the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association back in 1924. I'm going to ask you a bit more about your career as we move from a bit more of your family life into your professional life. There's, of course, been a very important person in the form of Professor Victoria Haskins, who's breached both of those worlds. You've kind of, you've obviously done a lot of work with Victoria, who's also a really highly regarded historian and professor of history, but she's also your life partner as well. How important has that relationship been for you? And what's it like sharing both the personal and the professional in that way? 
Oh, look, it's it's an amazing space from the time that Vicky and I met. I mean, we were just talking history. The first night, we were talking Aboriginal history all night because, you know, my grandfather, you know, fighting for Aboriginal rights in the 1920s and Vicky's uh, great-grandmother as a white woman was fighting alongside Pearl Gibbs and Jack Patton and uh, Bill Ferguson in the late 30s on the, the rights of Aboriginal people. So Vicky was undertaking a PhD on her great-grandmother's political fight um, of the late 30s and with me with my grandfather in the 20s. It was the perfect match. I guess <laughs> so you can speak. say that if you can spend all night talking Aboriginal history to someone and <laughs> conclude they're the person for you. Yeah, ab- absolutely. But, it, you know, we, we just love, we spend all of our spare time in secondhand bookshops. We love reading. We've got massive library of books. And I mean, we can, and we talk all the time on particularly political history and, and world history, if you like. It's uh, it's never ending discussion. You've spoken about how your family history really led you into um, the path of history as a career and partly because your curiosity around the university got you co-opted. And you've now become one of our most respected Aboriginal historians. You were one of the first Aboriginal historians. But one thing I think has been a hallmark of all the work you've done since you've been there is your focus on the importance of Aboriginal voice. You spoke a little bit about how that voice was absent in what you were reading as a child, but can you talk a little bit about how that's just been a central driver in your work as a historian? Absolutely. And as I said from the outset, undertaking a family history on my grandfather and the fight for Aboriginal rights of the 1920s, I never set out to write for the academy and for the university. Basically, my target audience has been first and foremost Aboriginal people, the Aboriginal community. I wanted our people to be able to read my work enjoy my work and gain inspiration from it, particularly our young ones. I didn't want these young ones coming through to be in the same position I was. I wanted them to have heroes and heroines of their own. And we've had a lot of them. I mean, all of our families, and you go back through, we've had these great campaigners and fighters for rights and, you know, so many different areas that our people have stood up for. And so the driving force for me has always been to reveal those stories and make it accessible to our people and our communities. And to add to that, also educate wider, wide Australia on the history that, you know, had been erased and, and taken off the historical page. I've, I've been driven from that. I've never wanted my stuff to be sitting on a university shelf gathering dust. I wanted our people, as I said, and the wider community to be able to read from it and gain from it. I think of how much my father enjoyed the accessibility of your work as somebody who who didn't have the opportunity to have the same pathway. He was very interested in higher education as well. And I guess it is that thing of you bringing these stories to life, brought them back to people who'd had a very different experience within the education system. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that, as I said, is the certainty of the driver for me. And I wished I had another three or four lifetimes. <laughs> ahead <laughs> we wish of me you because did too. There, is, <laughs> there is so much to be done. And this also brings up the point of, you know, the importance of nurturing young Aboriginal historians into the space because we still don't to this day have enough. You know, you probably can on, you know, 10 fingers. I mean, the numbers of Aboriginal historians out there in the space and we need to encourage 
our people into that space. So I would argue today that there's not an Aboriginal family or community that's not putting together, you know, their histories. Because when we had such a fractured past and there was a deliberate process of smashing, smashing our history and our past and people are now in the process of putting that together. But I really want to encourage our young ones into that, um, into that university space and then take up history and also present it back to our communities that we can gain and learn from it. So they're, the, they're the, certainly the, the drivers for me. In researching your family history, particularly around your grandfather's involvement in the AAPA, which is really covered well in your book, Fight for Liberty and Freedom, you also start to make connections between what was happening here amongst the organising Aboriginal political activists in the 1920s with other thinkers globally, particularly Marcus Garvey. You were at the forefront of making some of those connections. Can you share with us some of the things you found? Yeah, sure. I mean, it was it was an amazing journey in that space. And, you know, I can say I've been lucky, but I worked hard and I gained quite a lot of grants over the years. And a number of those grants were directed to unearthing connections. I mean, because what I discovered that with my grandfather as a dock worker and other Aboriginal dock workers, they were coming into contact with uh, visitors from overseas, merchant sailors, black merchant sailors, you know, coming in on ships. I mean, these are African-Americans, Africans. West Indians, people from the Pacific, Maoris. There was a whole host of black people coming in on these ships and they were gravitating towards the blackfellas on the docks. And, I mean, there was this exchange and um, of knowledge of what was going on. I mean, our people and certainly people like my grandfather were quick to realise that the racism, the prejudice and the oppression we were facing here, it wasn't just a localised thing, it was a global thing. And we needed to connect globally in that space. So in the initial instance, it was um, his connection with the group called the Coloured Progressive Association that was operational in Sydney from about 1903 through to 1919. And this was primarily made up of, as I said, um, merchants sailors. I mean, African-Americans, again, West Indians, Africans, Indians from the subcontinent, whole host of different black people. I mean, you can imagine too, the white Australia policy had been introduced and there was no red carpet rolled out for, for black men coming in off ships. I mean, that's why they connected with Aboriginal people on the dock. So the Coloured Progressive Association formed and they wrote letters to the British Parliament opposing the introduction of the white Australia policy. But Probably the standout thing uh, recording of them was the visit in 1907 to Australia of the great African-American boxer Jack Johnson. And Johnson had three fights in Australia in 1907 and knocked out all of his opponents. And But Johnson had always been denied the opportunity of fighting for a world heavyweight title. The colour bar had always been drawn against him. I mean, despite the fact that he uh, followed the white champions everywhere they went and baited them wherever possible... But the following year, I should say, sorry, moving on, that the Coloured Progressive Association um, hosted a farewell to Johnson from that 1907 visit and it was covered in the press and um, our family retained a photograph of that event which for a long time was thought to be the AAPA in conference in the 20s but I discovered um, from newspapers at the State Library that it was in fact the Coloured Progressive Association hosting a farewell to Jack Johnson which um, my grandfather's in that image. 
And then moving on, that Johnson returned to Australia in 1908 and uh, um, he was again chasing the current world heavyweight champion, white champion Tommy Burns around the world and finally managed to coerce or trick um, uh, Burns into a fight. I mean, that was all because of a, an entrepreneur in Sydney, U.D. McIntosh, who gained the name Huge Deal McIntosh. <laughs> because, um, he was at the press conference with Burns and um, he actually raised his hands, McIntosh, and said, what would it take you to fight, um, you know, Jack Johnson? And Burns just gave this ridiculous price, something like £6,900, which Burns assumed would be out of the reach of anybody to come up with such a massive amount of money. That would be today, you know, tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars, the, you know, uh, the equivalent. And um, McIntosh, for his part, banged his hand down on the table next to him and said, done. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know... <laughs> And he raised the money and he built the, the stadium at Rushcutters Bay and, um, you know, there were 20,000 inside and 40,000 outside and, of course, one of the greatest sporting events Australia held, certainly with an international focus. You know, you've got a, a black man fighting for the world title for the first time against a white title holder and it was the biggest sporting event Australia staged with an international focus up until the 1956 Olympic Games. Of course, we know that Jack Johnson absolutely destroyed Tommy Burns in the ring and all the racism and prejudice and oppression that not just he and his family had faced but what he had observed black people and oppressed people all across the globe had faced. He inflicted onto Tommy Burns and it was the most destructive fight of, you know, one one-sided fight, you could say, in history. I mean, but Johnson didn't want to finish it. I mean, he was just like a cat playing with a mouse and he was picking Tommy Burns apart, though, you know, knocked him down in the first round, knocked him down round after round, but didn't want to knock him out. He just wanted to make a real showing of this and um, destroy him in front of this largely, well, it was, there was he only spotted one black man in the crowd of 20,000. The police eventually had to jump into the ring and stop the punishment. It was so severe. So, um, and we had Jack Johnson as the world heavyweight champion, who himself was like the Muhammad Ali of his day and and was a great inspiration to Aboriginal people. That's another moment in our history that you've brought to life. I was going to ask you a little bit more about the enormous amount of work you've done across Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander excellence in sport. But before we moved on to that, I just wanted to talk about one more thing in relation to your work around the AAPA, because I think it really relates to something you said about how all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families are doing family histories. We talked mm. about the way you found connections between your grandfather and his peers and people from other backgrounds who were facing similar issues in that exchange of ideas. But I was mm. also wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you found about the connection between the people of that era, of your grandfather's era, his peers in the AAPA, and the prominent activists that we had around the 1970s, that next gener a couple of generations down really, but how there was what you found in relation to the connections there. Yeah, sure. We, we were going to touch on Marcus Garvey, who was the next big connection. And I think he's the crossover between the, the 1920s and certainly the, the 60s and 70s. And I was fortunate enough to uncover a link between my grandfather again through the docks, I mean, and he was receiving, you know, the Garvey's newspapers were, uh, Garvey sort of had 
black merchant sailors around the the world as a network of information. And Garvey established the biggest black movement ever seen in the United States, you know, with over 2 million members worldwide. And his uh, newspaper, The Negro World, had a distribution of hundreds of thousands of copies fortnightly around the globe uh, through these merchant sailors. Well, my grandfather finished up being a member of a, a Garvey chapter that was established in Sydney, along with his close friend, another Aboriginal activist, Tom Lacey. So they were at the forefront of understanding that uh, the Garvey movement was all about self-determination, cultural pride, understanding of black past, economic, social, political change uh, for the benefit of black people. And I mean, and it was a connection to country. There's, you know, the connection Garvey made with African-Americans back to Africa. Well, it was a really strong connection for us to realise we're still connected to our country and that's what we need to fight for. And that's why the Land Rights Act of the 20s was so strong. But what transpired through that, you know, that that membership, I mean, and the connections through to the 60s and 70s, um, Gary Foley's great-grandfather, Jimmy Doyle, was an office bearer of my grandfather's organisation, the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association. Gary Williams's grandmother's brother, Lambert Waddy, was another office bearer of the AAPA up at Nambucca Heads. So the Ridgeway family, um, there's all these connections of people um, who surfaced again in the 60s when we had that great surge of Aboriginal political activism again, you know, that coincided with massive social and political fights of the 60s and 70s. So it all had its roots back to the 20s, if you like, and that crossover and connection continued, if you like, the fight that had started in the 20s. It's a very exciting thing, must have been for particularly for the people who you've been able to connect to that really important movement. Absolutely. And then uh, there's so many, there's been so many people that I've, um, you know, connected with over the years and with the stories of that fight of that particular time period. And again, as I said, it's incredible to think that of all the records that I've uncovered, that this story could have disappeared, you know, and it's, uh, as I said, I think certainly there was a, there was a purpose of erasing such a memory. So um, yeah, it's been a, a great result. You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt and my guest this evening is Emeritus Professor John Maynard. John, we'll hear more from you shortly and I'm particularly interested in your research around racism in the sporting arena and how our communities have managed it. But right now, let's take a break with some music. This track is by Emily Waramara and is called Lullaby. Fill the sky 
Tell stories of past and present The trees whistle tunes Only they would know Whispering to the wind As she flies through the air
That's Emily Waramara with the track Lullaby. On Speaking Out tonight, we're profiling the remarkable life and career of academic and Aboriginal historian Emeritus Professor John Maynard. Born into a family of Aboriginal activists, John's work has largely focused on political and social history. His research encompasses the early days of the land rights movement and the fight for self-determination and truth-telling around race relations in our early colonial history. He is also the author of the critically acclaimed books Living with the Locals, Fight for Liberty and Freedom and the Aboriginal Soccer Tribe. But he's about to step down from his role as Chair of Indigenous History at the University of Newcastle. So tonight we're taking a look back at some of his most memorable achievements. Now, John, I mentioned earlier that one of the areas that your work has looked at extensively is the range of our community members in a number of sports. You've also done a really important book, which has had an updated edition on what I now know as the world game, but had previously known as soccer. And I just was wondering if you could talk or share with us, obviously your interest in sport as a place of storytelling goes beyond the actual sport itself. And one of the things I think you've done really importantly is to link participation or exclusion from sport with broader social and political pressures and movements. And I was just wondering if you could share with us why you find that space so interesting and what are some of the key themes you like to bring out in that work. Yeah, sure. I mean, well, sport's been a great focus for us. We've we've produced so many great champions, Aboriginal men and women. And there's also the staggering history of so many great champions that should have been, you know, Aboriginal champions that should have been, but because of, I mean, we spoke of the colour bar with Jack Johnson, and that was certainly enforced upon us. There was a denied space you know, whether you look at the NRL today and the AFL, for the greater part of their histories, and certainly until the late 60s and into the 70s, and certainly didn't take off to the 80s, where great numbers of Aboriginal players actually burst through and were given the chance, an opportunity to play that their skill warranted. You know, and across the last 50 years, you know, nearly 40 to 50 years, you'd have to say the greatest players in both of those codes sporting history have been Aboriginal players. But prior to this, you know, more recent period, there were barriers there and there's been barriers in so many sports. Wally MacArthur is another prime example, an incredible runner, athlete, you know, that um, was denied his opportunity to represent Australia in Olympic Games. I mean, he should have been there. I mean, he was the under-19 Australian champion at that time and he destroyed a field in Tasmania. Kevin Gosper finished up, um, uh, I think it was a silver medalist in the um, 52 games, I think it was, in um, Helsinki. I mean, Wally wasn't given the opportunity to run and he'd beaten Gosper and, and the rest of the field in an in a under-19 championship. So, you know, there's these barriers that were there that and were enforced. And so many great Aboriginal footballers, I mean, that I said... There was um, Douglas Grant, the war hero. I mean, you know, I did a study on uh, military service and Grant had been a prisoner of war in the First World War in, in Germany. And when he returned, he was working in Lithgow and he responded to a newspaper thing that the white teams in the Lithgow area refused to play against a team that had Aboriginal players and was eventually forced out of the, the competition. And Douglas Grant replied in the press, there was no colour bar in the trenches. 
you know, and we know today that there are over a thousand Aboriginal men mm-hmm. went to the Western Front and Gallipoli and fought for their country. So they could lay down their lives, but they couldn't get a Guernsey or even share a change room with the white players on the sporting field. So these are the horrifying examples of what we experienced. And again, the driver for me in undertaking that was growing up on the race course with my father at, in Newcastle at Broadmeadow and knowing the, you know, my father, Merv Maynard, Stan Johnson, Normie Rose, Gordon Taylor, there, David Matthews. There was a whole group of Aboriginal jockeys that rode, you know, through my young life and they weren't in the history books. Why weren't they there? And it, even the great Darby McCarthy only got a, you know, a, a glancing reference. So that's why I undertook to write that book about Aboriginal jockeys, but it also explored our use in the stock industry and abuse in the stock industry. You know, mm. we, we realise today that without Aboriginal stock men and women, you know, the great success of the Australian stock industry would never have been. You know, they say Australia was carried on the sheep's back. I've always said it was carried on the black's back, you know, certainly as stock workers. So that also came through very strongly in that book on Aboriginal jockeys. You've already spoken a lot about what was missing in your own education and obviously that explains a lot about why you're drawn to telling these stories and filling in those gaps and making sure these stories don't get lost. I was wondering just though in a more forward-looking way, what role you think truth-telling can play in terms of our socioeconomic position and the continued aspirations for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? This is the most critical thing today and what we need to look at over the next two, three, four years is a whole process of truth-telling that the whole country is educated on what happened in this country, you know, from 1788 onwards. And if it's the country is ever to heal where we can join hands together and walk on to a shared future, we have to go through this process You can't continue to sweep the history under the carpet as if it never happened. You know, grow up and, um, you know, look at the past, you know, recognise it and then heal from it. And that's the process that we need to undertake. And that's got to be a national process. They did it in South Africa. It needs to happen here and we need to move on from that. And that, of course, uh, needs to lead through to a treaty and um, the whole process of, uh, of change that this country is, is really longing for, as I said, that needs to happen. Thinking about how important that forward-looking process of engaging with history, the truth-telling is, and we've spoken a lot about how it's been a real passion of yours to make sure your work is accessible, particularly to Indigenous community members. I guess one of the areas where you've been really innovative in terms of your own practice as a historian is the way that you disseminate research. And you said you didn't like your work to just be stuck in the libraries in in universities, but you have experimented with doing film and a whole range of other things. What's drawn you to that? And what have you seen the impact of being able to tell stories in that form? I think that's certainly the way of the future. And if you want to get to the mass audience and make change happen, you have to look at ways to get those stories out there to the wider audience. And certainly film and documentaries is certainly the way to do it. And, you know, I've worked with many others, I mean, even British filmmakers. And um, 
on different areas of history. And to get to that bigger audience, this is the way of the future. And this is the platform and way to tell these stories and bring about change. I mean, Ken Burns, the impact of his documentaries in the United States, a fabulous filmmaker. And, you know, his film, Jack Johnson, was one, you know, uh, and many Civil War and many others. I mean, this is the area that um, we need to move into. And as I said, that's the way we can we can really make an impact. One way that people can engage with that work of yours is you have a website called Maynard Icons that people can access. Tell us a bit about the website and the sort of stories you've got on there. We put together these six history shorts, if you like, um, and uh, they're available on the website now. And one is on Aboriginal jockeys and one's on Aboriginal boxes. I look at also um, a language one between Threlkeld and Biriban of the Newcastle area, a couple of white campaigners of the 1920s, and I think that's important to look at that, that you know, non-Indigenous people in the past have stood up and supported us, had the courage to do so. So that was another story. The Douglas Grant story, who I mentioned briefly before, I mean, from World War One. So these are the stories that are up on this site. I mean, the Living with the Locals I did with Vicky... Um, um, we did a number of, I think, what, four or five of those as well that will be up on that site. So, yeah, it's going to be um, a great way for people to access. I've had a lot of contacts since the showing of some of those films in Newcastle from England and uh, one fellow from Brazil <laughs> who were, you know, um, really excited about that delivery. So that just shows the impact of, you know, that medium. We find you now in retirement, though I suspect, as many others do, that you're going to be as busy as ever with uh, many things. But as you've gotten to this point in your life and you look back, as one of the, as I mentioned earlier, one of our first Indigenous academics, our first Indigenous professors, what do you hope your legacy will be? Yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's a big thing to think about. In recent years, I mean, I had a heart attack. I mean... <laughs> you suddenly start thinking of mortality and, you know, and uh, I always thought I'd be here forever, but suddenly you realise, and I often speak to Gary Foley, we compare notes and pills that we're taking, but that we realise we're not going to be here together and we're, we're slowly running out of time. The, the hourglass is tipping over. But to continue to produce work that can impact and influence change and certainly inspire our people, I really hope that... I can play a part in encouraging some of the young people into the history area and they can continue on and carry the uh, the baton, if you like, into the future. And I think that would be my greatest legacy in the sense of producing more Aboriginal historians to tell the truth of what happened in this country. Well, you were made Emeritus Professor by the University of Newcastle as recognition of your enormous contribution to the academy and to that institution over time. How does the title sit with you? <laughs> uh, I haven't got used to it yet. <laughs> Feel a bit you know. too young for it, do you? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like, what, what do you classify as young? I'm 67 this year and, I mean, it's, you know, I, I actually think, you know, where's the time gone? You know, where, how, you realise that life is... So short, you just go through life and it, it seems to be like when you're a teenager in your 20s and 30s, life is just, you know, on forever. But um, 
slowly but surely that, that it's closing in. But um, yeah, the emeritus professor, I was, I was greatly honoured. I mean, I've retained an office and a and a phone and an email address. I said the only difference is now I do work and don't pay me. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope so. the title's worth it then. <laughs> yeah. No, but I, I was greatly honoured, and as I said, I've I've stuck with Newcastle over the years. I mean, I've had certainly a lot of opportunities to to move, you know, to other institutions. But um, I've always saw the importance of being in the in the regional space and certainly in the space connected to where I come from and, and where family is connected to. And I have to say that over the years, I mean, Newcastle University has given me and um, Aboriginal people incredible support. And as the same as UTS and other areas of the country has been one of the big changes because... That was not possible for me in the early 70s to think that, you know, as a 16 or 17-year-old or 18-year-old or 19-year-old or 20-year-old that you could go to university because that just wasn't there, you know. There was no possibility that you could, you know, go to university. Um, so that has been one of the great changes that has come through. Well, of course, we know that Charlie Perkins and Gary Williams were there in the early 60s, but it wasn't until the 80s that that really sort of opened up and... Um, that's been one of the great changes that, you know, both you and I have witnessed in, in our time and, um, and it continues to grow and it's, it's such an exciting impact. Having achieved so much in your own career and not just, I guess, in, a, in the sense of being one of the most productive professors of history beyond just in the Indigenous Academy but beyond that, having made so many big impacts with the way that you've conducted your research, you've challenged us to think differently about audience and process and where we put Indigenous voice. What's your advice to young Indigenous people who are looking for a career in maybe research or academia, but I guess really for advice around their career in general? I guess be passionate, be driven, be motivated, be organised and have that drive to make change. I mean, that's always been the driver for me. And and as I said, it's the great inspiration we draw upon, as I have drawn upon, is family. There's no greater motivator in that respect. I guess for me, I was always really highly motivated and driven with my work. I mean, I wrote the the soccer book in six weeks. I mean, so, well, as if we didn't uh, already feel like underachievers. <laughs> you know, I mean, but but I felt that was an important story to tell. But I'd spent so much time and of years gathering material, and then that just poured out. You know, that particular story. You know, and I, I look at people coming into the, into the university, and I say to our mob, you know, like young students coming through, I said, just get your essays in. Don't ask for extensions. If you pass, you will go through university, you know, and this is one of the things, just stay on track and be driven that you want to make change, you know, for our people and there's no greater motivation than that. But once, you know, certainly for a historian, I mean, I'm also lucky and blessed that I have loved being in the libraries and I've loved being in the archives and I've loved being sitting down with people with a microphone and recording their stories. I mean, I just love being in that space. And I mean, so that's been the great benefit for me. And I think that's probably the reflection on my on my work is I've combined the best of both sides of that. You know, I've combined the archival 
record with oral memory, you know. And the Jack Johnson one was one example of that where I was sitting down with an uncle in Western New South Wales with that family photograph and he said, that's not the AAPA. And he said, that man in the back of that photograph is Jack Johnson. You know, and, well, I was a boxing aficionado. And I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, God, that does look like Jack Johnson. So I spent two weeks back at the Mitchell Library going through microfiche and, and newspapers because I knew Johnson had been in Australia in 1907 and 1908. That's how I found the Coloured Progressive Association. That's how I found the farewell to Jack Johnson. So it's combining those two things, you know, oral memory with archival evidence. And the other way around is you might be sitting down with someone in an interview and then because you've got found something in the archive, you can ask that as part of the question. You know, someone say, oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember something about that, you know. <laughs> you know, so it's that combination and the incredible joy of unfinding these nuggets of information. I was at the Schomburg library in Harlem, I think it was 2003, going through all the Garvey papers and um, newspapers. And there I found a reference to Tom Lacey writing to Marcus Garvey that was published in The Negro World and, you know, telling that Garvey that um, there were 10,000 Aboriginal people in New South Wales and 60,000 Aboriginal people nationally and they were going to get the message out to them, you know. And it was all about this incredible discovery I remember emailing Heather Goodall at the time. I said, you know, I found this gold nugget. (laughs) (laughs) So that Tom Lacey was writing to Marcus Garvey. (laughs) You know, and these are the things that, you know, you look back on and think, God, you know, and there's been so many of them. I've been very lucky. But again, I said it's been a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah, of course. So finally tonight, John, we've already mentioned you are not the sort of person to retire quietly. How are you going to be spending your time from now on? A bit of golf, a bit of fishing, and some more time in libraries and archives and writing. (laughs) Sounds perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Good to catch up. Well, Emeritus Professor John Maynard, thank you so much for coming on the show again and sharing such a great snippet of your life and achievements with us. And I hope you'll keep in touch as you keep doing new things, I've no doubt, making new films, doing new books as you go forward. I hope you'll keep in touch with us. Absolutely, Larissa. Larissa wouldn't miss it. Thanks, John. Thank you. That's Aboriginal historian Emeritus Professor John Maynard. And that's all we have time for this week. But to take us out tonight, we've got some new music from Troy Cassadaly. Here he is with Rainmaker. gift since she was a child came down from a grandmother's great grandmother's side round the twisted roots of old mangrove she taught her how to dance read the wind read the troubled sky with just a glance in hand all day and all night long learning how she could make or break a storm with just a song to feel the earth 
beneath her feet Rumble where she stands The thunder and the lightning strikes Gathered in her hands Yeah, she's a rainmaker Bring it on down Raise that river Flood the town Call it out to a landing pain Flood this land with your healing rain Creek up by Jack Adjurine. She could sing that water down the gorge, set the rapids free. Where the golden everlasting, the ancient grass trees grow, she could see the world that waits behind the one window. She's a rainmaker Bring it on down Raise that river Flood the town Call it out to a land in pain Flood this land when you hear Southwest, the wind was riding high. She raised that axe in both her hands and aimed it at the sky. And as she swung that axe head down, she sang a word she knew. Sunk that axe head in the ground, cleave that storm in two. Yeah, she's a rainmaker Bring it on down Raise the river Flood the town Call it out To a land in pain Flood this land With a healing rain Ooh, That's Troy Cassadaly with Rainmaker, a song taken from his new album, The World Today. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we explore the history of Aboriginal Rugby League in New South Wales. The living on a mission didn't, didn't deny us the fact that there was sporting talent in the community. Well, uh, the footy club started out about the late 1930s, 1940s, and my father, my, my 
uncles and all that played for, for libraries. And they, they played against the local size like Maruba and Mascot. And there were so many teams in the, in the local South Sydney area. But uh, Aboriginal football is represented by the, 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 the blokes from, uh, from LARPA and, and, and Redfin because there was no other sports, you know. Uh, there was no golfers. If it, if it, the closest they got to golf was, was uh, carrying the, the rich white players' bags as caddies. And uh, some people could only look back on the players who represented us some years back. You see what they come through to get where they were because, you know, none of them had a pair of football boots even. So they just, uh, you know, just, just scrounge, uh, go caddying, carry rich people's golf bags around the, the courses that prevailed around LARPA and then they save up and get themselves a pair of shoes. That's, that's the way it worked. Yeah. There, there was hardly any work, you know, uh, for any of the men. There was no dole then. Back in those days, it was just, uh, and I can still remember the last days of the rations, you know, and they didn't give out football boots along with the, with the, the meat and the, and the flour and the tea and the mm. sugar and the tobacco that they handed out. So, uh, you know, to every success to these young men today, you know, and I take great pride in that, and so, so do we all. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Thank you.